Herb Alper and the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. This episode of Fangraphs Audio is special, uh, not only for the presence of Dave Cameron, but also because, owing to Internet-related malfunctions at my house, Carson Sestouli's house, has been recorded in a quiet-ish corner of the University of Wisconsin's Union South. And the presence of any sort of ambient noise owes wholly uh, to that fact. As for the actual content of this episode, we have Dave Cameron addressing a piece he published in the electronic pages of Fangraphs today concerning roster expansion and September hitting. Quite a few players, uh, including Ichiro Suzuki, Justin Upton, Gabby Sanchez, Russell Martin, all of whom have uh, produced at less than optimal levels over the first five months of the season, have all had excellent Septembers. Dave Cameron asked the question, is it because of roster expansion and, in particular, perhaps a diluted pitching or a diluted pitching pool? We discussed not only that phenomena, but also the phenomena that is Ichiro Suzuki's resurgence, question mark, uh, for the New York Yankees. He is, of course, hitting quite well for New York. And we consider why that might be. It also leads to a discussion of this year's run environment at Ichiro's previous home park, that is Safeco in Seattle, Washington. Safeco has suppressed batted balls of all sorts. We look at how that might affect roster construction for the Mariners in the near future and other clubs whose parks present interesting challenge as far as roster construction is concerned. Additionally, on this episode, Cameron and I consider the AL MVP debate. And if said debate has more to do with the quality of the players involved, and that is Mike Trout and Miguel Cabrera, or the identities of the voters. Finally, I consider with Cameron the difference between high ceiling versus high floor prospects, and how, while one might receive more consideration by prospect analysts, the other likely has just as much value for their respective major league teams. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor Dave Cameron. It was recorded at the Union South at the University of Wisconsin, and it begins, listener, right now. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Hopefully one who would be full of wisdom. That's the sort that I asked for, I requested specifically. So uh, as it is right now, Cameron, I'm sure that at least a, a, a half a percent of our listeners will be familiar with Un- the Union South at University of Wisconsin. Um, the, benef- yeah. the benefit of this location is that they have the uh, the Brewers Nationals game live right now um, on the on a big on a giant projection screen. I mean, probably like 15 feet by 10 feet or something like that. That is a nice little benefit. You don't have one of those at your house? No, I don't. I didn't, my there's no wall that fits that description in my house. Right. Is there, I mean, it's barely. That's like the size of one of, of like one of the floor. So, well, cool. Do you uh, do you have any interest in talking about baseball, doing a podcast? Um, sure, if I have to. <laughs> The uh, um, you you are concerned with one thing um, in today's electronic pages, which is the. I guess there are there, there's probably more than one um, thought on this, um, but it concerns uh, player performance during September, during in particular during September because of roster expansion. Um, there may be reason to believe. There may not be reason to believe. That players, uh, certain players will play better during the, the expanded roster 
um, part of the season because the variety of talent is more diverse. You look today at hitters, though. Yeah, I mean, so essentially uh, I was in a conversation with a couple of people over the weekend where I noted that uh, Justin Hopkins, for one, was having a pretty good September. And uh, there were a few other guys. Michael Young was the name of the ball better lately. Carlos Pena. There were a few guys who had really bad years. Uh, Ichiro was obviously, you know, it was like 35 for his last 36 or something. Uh, they've had really bad years, but they've gotten super hot lately, and they've been scorching the ball. And several independent people in different conversations made the same comment of, yeah, well, September stats don't really matter because they're just facing all these inferior pitchers who are in the minors. And so, you know, you can't really look at offensive numbers in September they're useless, uh, you know, lots of guys are hitting well this month because of all the bad pitching. And, you know, I've heard this line of the game before, and I was like, you know, I don't know if we're actually seeing the show whether league offense goes up in September, which is kind of the truism that they're they're arguing from, is that league offense spikes in September when all these terrible pitchers come up to the minors. Uh, and I was just curious whether that was true. And, you know, certainly it wasn't the last uh, word on this issue, and there's more research that can be done if you really wanted to dig through and look at all the pictures that these guys faced and, you know, isolate for just guys who've been in the majors before September call-ups. And, um, but overall, I think it's interesting that, you know, the offense generally goes down in September, which is, uh, you know, different than the, than the narrative. Right. And now let me ask you a question, um, and because I think this is sort of the natural question to ask in response to that, would be um, would the overall offensive numbers be affected by uh, there also being a number of position players that have been promoted. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one of the, the factors that was brought up. Um, but I think, you know, if we look at historically the types of players that get called up in September, it's predominantly pitchers. So the September call-ups are almost entirely, uh, ex- the expansion of almost entirely roster spots going to extra pitchers. Um, pretty much every team in baseball calls up three or four extra arms for, you know, matchup reasons or just depth or, you know, in case of an extra inning game. And, you know, not that many teams call up position players, and they don't use position players nearly as much as they use extra pitchers. So I think the quantity of innings that goes to guys who are in AAA is significantly larger than the quantity of plate appearances that goes to guys who are in AAA. I just don't think it's as easy. You know, you can skip a start for a veteran starter whose arm might be getting tired, or you can, you know, jumble and go to a six-man rotation, which a lot of teams have been doing the last few years. It's a lot easier to work in one of these pitchers than it is to bench a productive everyday guy and say, okay, now we're just going to give it his to some kid out of AAA. Right. Or, I mean, uh, we see the case that clearly there are a number of arms getting chances, uh, whereas, for example, Jerickson Profar, um, you know, who's probably the uh, the best remaining prospect after, you know, uh, the likes of uh, Bryce Harper and, uh, you know, Matt Moore have exceeded, and, of course, Mike Trout as well, have exceeded their, their sort of proc- respective prospect statuses. Um, uh, even Jerick's Profar is finding plate appearances uh, hard to come by. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I think the Rangers situation is a little unique where they called up both Olt and Profar and then didn't play either of them because the manager likes veterans. Uh, but even around baseball, I don't think you can look at that many guys. Uh, you know, the Royals didn't call up Will Myers. Like, you know, a lot of the better offensive prospects um, didn't get called up, and they're, you know the guys who did get called up aren't really getting used that much. So I think we we see a significantly larger proportion of pitchers who get called up to actually get innings. Uh, and I, I think that the even if we took the hitters uh, that were September call ups out of the mix, I don't think the numbers would change much. So 
a couple of the names that you invoke, though, in that uh, in your post, which I should say, uh, again, appears today and is called Roster Expansion in September Hitting, a couple of those names are interesting, and not the least of which is, is the first name you list, which is Ichiro, Ichiro Suzuki, who uh, has been hitting very well, not just uh, not just in the month of September, um, but really in, in his uh, short career as a New York Yankee. Uh, he's doing some things, uh, I guess, well, certainly differently than he was doing uh, with uh, Seattle earlier this year. Um, I mean, mostly, I, I guess there's some batted ball stuff going on there. Um, he's not; he's actually walking less and striking out more. Uh, do you think that this is a, a different Ichiro, or do you think this is an Ichiro who's getting the benefit of batted ball luck? Uh, I think maybe it's, uh, it's probably mostly batted ball. I mean, I think Babbitt with the Mariners is like 280, and with the Yankees it's like 350. So, I mean, you know, there's... Uh, Likely a true mean somewhere in the middle, uh, and he's probably on the high side of that now and was on the low side in Seattle. Um, but I also think it's a little interesting to look at how he throws down after getting traded when we know what we know about how Safeco Field has played this year. A couple of months ago, I wrote a post about um, the effects of, of Safeco on batting average and balls and play this year. And it's, you know, it's always been known as a park that killed homers for right-handed hitters. Um, and it's been a good pitcher's park, but this year it's dramatically deflating batting average on balls in play for all kinds of hitters, right-handers and left-handers alike. And there's not really a great explanation for why, um, but it's continued throughout the year. Consider that post, it's basically still been a, a massive offensive suppressor. So each row is basically the one guy who's escaped the park and has significant playing time in some other park, and his batters have gone way up since getting traded, which, you know, speaks to the fact that maybe there's something going on in Seattle, whether it's a batter's eye issue or... Um, you know, maybe it's a weather thing. I mean, it's really hard to say exactly what it could be. But there's a lot of evidence that Safeco Field is doing something weird to offense this year. And, you know, Pedro getting traded out of that offensive sinkhole and then immediately, you know, performing like peak Pedro again uh, gives some credence to the fact that maybe the park is uh, more of a factor than we think. Yeah, I was curious. Uh, you, you mentioned some of your hypotheses. I wonder if, um, I mean, for however uncertain you might be now, I wonder if uh, any of your theories about the park and, and why it's playing like this have changed uh, since you wrote that piece? Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things that, you know, when I wrote it, I think we had like two and a half, three months of data, and we could say that, you know, Safeco was uh, significantly cooler, Seattle was significantly cooler this year than the rest of the country in April and May. Uh, that continued in June. June was also a very cool month relative to the rest of the country. So the first three months of the year were pretty cool, but then in July, you know, I was up there in July, it was pretty nice. Like, uh, Seattle actually did have summer. Um, you know, it's been in the 60s and 70s lately, so it hasn't been like an Arctic chill all summer long. And the park is still not allowing any runs, and it's still doing it in kind of the same way. Um, you know, very low batting average in balls in play uh, for all kinds of hitters, all kinds of pitchers. It's not just a lefty fly ball guy anymore. Uh, you know, Jason Vargas has given up a ton of home runs, but he's still had a pretty good year because his, his batting average in balls in play is like 250. Uh, Sashi Iwakuma the same way. Um, these are very different kinds of pitchers, and so it's not just the normal safe-go effect on, you know, the type of player that we know has problems in that park. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that there's an obvious thing that you can point to and say, this is what safe is doing. It's doing something. I don't think we know what it is. Ed, I'm curious to say, like, now, if we were to think that this... Well, I guess, do we think this effect will last, right? Because you say that, that the sort of batted ball suppression... Um, this year at Safeco is more extreme than in previous years. Uh, if you are the front office of the Mariners, how do you treat this? 
I mean, it's a, it's a pretty good question. It really kind of screws up your evaluation, especially considering the Mariners have some young hitters who have really large home road splits. I mean, Kyle Seager has been fantastic on the road, pretty bad at home. He's a left-handed guy who shouldn't be affected by Faithco all that much. Jesus Montero has really huge splits. So, you know, if you look at uh, Montero's road numbers for a 22-year-old, you're like, hey, this is actually a pretty good season. We think this guy might turn into a masher. If you look at his overall season, he's been below replacement level. So, um, you know, how they evaluate the effectiveness of their hitters and, what, you know, maybe more importantly, what they think other hitters from other teams might do coming into this park. I mean, you know, they've made it pretty clear they're going to go out and try and get some kind of established veteran middle of the order kind of hitter this winter to stick in the middle of their lineup. But, you know, if you go out and you get a Josh Hamilton or a Justin Upton or one of these guys who's played in a favorable hitting environment and has pretty large home road splits already, could you throw them into a ballpark that, you know, if it's going to continue to keep crushing offense the way it has been, um, are you going to get a good performance from a Josh Hamilton or a Justin Upton, or are they just going to come here and be more evident for the fact that the park is brutal on offense? And, um, you know, that's a question they're going to have to ask and figure out. I don't think they can afford to assume that this one-year park factor is going to be the norm going forward. We have, you know, 10, 12 years of data before this year that say that Safeco is a good pitcher's park but nothing this extreme. So it's probably likely that it's going to go back to, you know, what it was before rather than this, you know, kill on steroids that it is this year. Um, but I think overall, you know, the Mariners are going to have to be realistic in their evaluations of, um, you know, their hitting, their hitting performance this year and what they actually think their young kids are capable of. Can you think of uh, other notable examples of, of uh, clubs with notable parks or notable park effects and, and how the organizations either have or haven't um, I guess uh, reacted to those effects in, in terms of roster construction? Well, I think Colorado would probably be the most notable one, right? I mean, Coors Field is uh, certainly uh, its own little unique beast, and they've you know done things with the humidor to try and change it, but it seems like the Rockies' plan has been to change plans every couple of years, to try things, throw a bunch of stuff at the wall, hope something sticks, nothing really has, and they haven't really figured out how to build a good roster there yet, so um, I do think some of these extreme parks cause problems in roster construction. I mean, San Diego with Petco, um, they basically know that left-handed power hitters aren't going to hit any power there. So they've just avoided them. They traded Adrian Gonzalez away and traded for Yonder Alonso, who's a single-hitting first baseman. Um, and they basically just said, look, we're not going to have any left-handed power in our life. We're going to get a bunch of athletes. We're going to have Cameron Maven run around out there with Will Venable. And, you know, we're going to try and get fly catchers to chase around the ball in the outfield. And we're just going to abandon the idea of left-handed power. We're going to get some right-handed pull-power guys like Carlos Clinton, but we're not even going to try and have lefties with the ball over the wall. When they go on the road and they face a good right-handed pitcher, that's a problem because they don't have anyone in their lineup who can, you know, yank the ball out to right field. Um, so I do think that, you know, some of these extreme parks, especially some of the, like, the asymmetrical extreme parks, can really cause problems and probably are more harm than they're worth. Yeah, and it should be noted, uh, I'm sure you were thinking of him, even if you didn't mention him, is uh, they traded away Anthony Rizzo, um, who, who yeah. I, I guess whose prospect status um, you know, went up and went down at different points because he certainly did not have a, a lot of success in his, uh, in his major league debut last year. But, of course, he's playing very well this year. Yeah, right. I mean, Rizzo is another example of a left-handed pull-power guy that they decided wasn't going to play well in, in San Diego. I mean, Gonzalez was an all-field hitter. He had power to left center. He was about as good a hitter as you could have for for a left-handed hitter in, in San Diego. Uh, obviously, there were financial reasons why they didn't keep him as well. But, you know, I mean, I think we've seen that overall the Padres have basically said, 
it's just not worth investing in left-handed power for for our team for this ballpark. And, you know, I think when you're not playing in San Diego or you're facing a good right-handed pitcher, if you've just given up a left-handed power, that's a significant problem. Now, another player who made that list um, uh, in, in your post with regard to roster expansion and, and September hitting uh, is Justin Upton. You know, Justin Upton, I know, is a player uh, for whom you've you've had a great deal of optimism. And, you know, for the obvious reasons, is that because he's been very good at a very young age. And generally, if you look at those sorts of players, they tend to have uh, long and productive, successful major league careers. Uh, of course, this has not been the case for Justin Upton this year after having a, a season worth over six wins in 2011. Uh, this year, even despite a, a BABIP in the 330 range, um, he's only posted two and a half wins, which granted is, you know, slightly above average. Uh, but when you're talking about a player who, uh, for all intents and purposes, has been considered, uh, you know, a budding superstar, that's not precisely the sort of season you want to see. And a lot of it has to do for him um, with uh, with problems with power. He only has 15 home runs this year. Um, but as you note, uh, he has had a successful September. And I'm curious, is this the real Justin Upton? Um, has there been, like, uh, I know that was the, has been the case, for example, with a Ricky Weeks type this year, he's been constantly getting better uh, due to what may or may not have been an injury in the early season. Is it that situation? Is it a question of applying himself because his effort has been uh, called into question at times? Uh, or is it just randomness? I mean, I think with Upton, it's really hard to get around the thumb issue. So we know he's been dealing with a uh, thumb injury. Hand injuries of all sorts are notorious power sappers. Wrist injuries, anything to do with, like, the hammy bone. Um, you know, the thumb is part of the, you know, hand uh, grip power area. And I think, you know, with Upton, it's hard to get around the fact that at 24, his power has significantly dropped at the same time that he's, had, he's been dealing with a thumb issue. Um, you know, pretty much across the board, the rest of his skills have stayed about the same or um, slightly even increased. So his strikeout rates uh, trended upwards or trended downwards, trended in the right direction as the season's gone on. His contact rates at a career high. Um, you know, he's walking a little more than he did last year. Still hitting the ball fairly hard on a regular basis. It's just not going as far. Um, and so I think when you look at something like that and you say, hey, look, a 24-year-old who's, um, you know, had prodigious power for a player his age um, is all of a sudden not hitting for power uh, and he has a hand issue, I think it's fairly easy at that point to just kind of hand wave it away and say, this is not a thing that we should be worried about long term. So if I'm one of these teams that's looking into acquiring Justin Upton, his stat line this year doesn't really bother me that much. Even with the thumb issue, he's still been a three-win player. Um, you know, he's still a good defender. Like, there's there's not really anything there that you can say, man, I'm really concerned that this is going to be a long-term issue. Uh, you know, I guess the one thing to take into consideration is kind of what we talked about with the park factors in Seattle. Upton's got really large home road splits, and Arizona's a really good place to hit. And uh, his, his home road splits are bigger than you would expect. And, uh, you know, I think... If you're thinking of taking Upton out of Arizona, um, you at least have to be somewhat concerned through the fact that he's never really hit well on the road in his career. He hasn't hit well on the road this year. Uh, most of his power has come at home. And, uh, you know, if you're going to put him into a, a bigger ballpark or, you know, a, a, an altitude where the ball doesn't fly quite as well, um, then you'd have to have some concerns. I mean, I think they might be a little overstated just looking at his raw home road splits because in the NL West, you know, his road games include San Diego and San Francisco and Los Angeles and a lot of games on the West Coast. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that you just want to look at his home numbers and say, let's throw those out the window. 
um, and look at his road numbers and think those are, you know, true talent levels. But that probably is the biggest concern in acquiring Upton is, you know, $45 million over three years plus the prospects or plus the players you're going to have to give up to get him. You need him to be an elite player. And road numbers suggest he's not always an elite player outside of Arizona. Okay, uh, we're going to um, switch gears here and uh, look at a story that I'm sure that you uh, would love to continue to discuss uh, for the next you know, several hours even, and that is the AL MVP race. Yes, we cannot get enough AL MVP done. No, we can't. The, uh, I mean, I guess, I, guess, I guess my first question is, uh, really, how much more tolerance do you have for this particular subject? You know, I think it's one of those ones that uh, talking about it, I don't know, is going to make a whole lot of difference. I mean, the, in general, I think the sides have been drawn, um, and people are kind of starting to talk past each other. So last week I wrote a couple articles on this, and I tried to do my best to not talk in, you know, war versus non-war and just kind of lay out the case for Trout from a, um, you know, traditional statistics uh, perspective, you know, if you include doubles and walks and grounded into double plays, and these things are traditional statistics. Um, so I don't, I don't know much much more we can say. I mean, if the, if the people who want to vote for Miguel Cabrera as AL MVP just want to evaluate him on batting average home runs and RBIs and think that everything else doesn't matter, then, you know, continuing to talk about it is kind of pointless. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to have the discussion, but it's one of those things where I don't know how much progress we're going to make. Right. Yeah, and you do you do get the sense. I mean, what what do you see as the essential split beyond the the fact that um, Mike Trout leads? Um, you know, in in this way, we look at we, we look at baseball players and we say we can adjust for position. Um, roughly, we can um, take elements. Um, you know, we we can look at overall offensive production as opposed to those that are maybe represented um, merely merely by home runs and RBI and batting average. Um, there, there does seem to be a real attachment. I mean, this might be getting more to the area of social science um, than, you know, than either you or I have, you know, the expertise for. Um, but there does seem to be a certain sort of a certain trait of thought that suggests if Miguel Cabrera wins the Triple Crown, then that equals MVP. And I'm, I'm curious just for for your thoughts on that. Again, this doesn't necessarily need to be grounded in um, sort of baseball background. It could be just a reading of the, the human spirit. Yeah, I'm, to do you me, feel comfortable? It's, it's, do you feel comfortable trotting there? It's, I mean, I, I'm fine trotting. Uh, I don't know how accurate I'll be. And to me, I think the weird thing is that you know when you say something like, and people have basically written this over the last few days or last week or so, is that if Miguel Cabrera wins the triple crown, then he must be the MVP. This is essentially the accusation that we get all the time of being a slave to the numbers the extreme degree. Like, if a sabermetric person came out and said, if you accomplish these three things and these three numbers match up, then the discussion is over. You cannot talk about anything else. These three numbers dictate the result regardless of what anyone else in baseball did. That opinion would be ridiculed with scorn and they would be told to watch a baseball game and consider the fact that the game is, uh, exists beyond a few numbers and that you can't, you know, the credibility of those numbers would be called into question. But that's exactly what the argument is, is that these three numbers that have been held up throughout baseball history are, are somehow, um, you know, beyond reproach because of tradition. Uh, it seems like it's, you know, 
There were a batch of voters who were unhappy a couple of years ago when Felix Hernandez won the Cy Young because it discredited pitcher wins. And it seemed like the BBWA was moving away from the win as a pitcher statistic. It almost seemed like that batch of voters has decided to take a, a stance on this one and say, fine, we lost the pitcher win battle, but we're not giving up on the triple crown. And it's less about the actual merits of Miguel Cabrera and Mike Trout as it is in defending the honor of the way baseball has been viewed for the last hundred years. And it, it, I think it, it's bad that in many ways improvements in analysis and uh, critical thinking and logic and reason are seen as some kind of assault on the sport or uh, an affront to the way the game is viewed, where if you consider the value of doubles, walks, defense, and base running, you're all of a sudden ruining the greatness of baseball. To me, that's just... I, I, I can't understand that line of thinking. Uh, you know, when we talk about the great players of all time, if you ask any of these guys uh, who are alive in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the names that come up first are Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle, the guys who did everything, the center fielders who hit for power and ran the bases. It's, you know, we don't talk about the power-hitting first baseman who drove in a lot of runs as the greatest player of all time. It's almost always uh, athletic center fielders or guys who could do absolutely everything on the field. That's what Mike Trout is. <laughs> Mike Trout is... Um, you know, that kind of five-tool amazing player that you think of if you were going to drop a baseball player who could do absolutely everything, uh, that's Mike Trout. And yet, because uh, the metrics that say he's awesome aren't home runs and RBIs, we should discard them. Uh, to me, it's just a... This argument is less about Mike Trout and Miguel Cabrera and more about trying to hold on to the way one thinks about baseball. Right, and I, I, I yes, I, I see that as the case, and I see that from both sides too. Right, is because uh, th- things changing, um, change is uh, frightening, right? Especially if you've uh, sort of if if one's identity or the identity of a of a, of a thing, in this case, baseball, has been um, built upon a certain set of presumptions, right? Um, once you change those. Those assumptions that could be that could be frightening. I mean, that's that's a fair comment, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, I understand the change is a little scary, um, but I mean, to me, the difference isn't even. We're not. No one's asking the people that who want to vote for Miguel Cabrera to consider war as the be-all, end-all of baseball analysis. We're just asking them to consider that doubles, walks, base running, and defense might hold some value above zero. Like, the, the change that's being asked for doesn't seem that scary out of space. Right. Okay. No, I, I mean, hey. I think it's, you, you know, and I want to also, uh, uh, I want to take a, a moment to credit to credit Paul Swyden. Paul Swyden wrote, um, wrote an excellent piece that, uh, towards the end of last week, um, I believe called the, the Triple Crown is Not Evil. Yeah. It was called The Triple Crown is Not Evil, in which he looked at previous Triple Crown winners, uh, I, I think just to make it clear that typically those players are very good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. I, I, it, I think it's hard to win a triple crown and have a very bad season. Right, and I think this has always been kind of the argument about pitcher wins as well. You can't really win twenty games and suck in a season. I mean, it's possible to not be great and win twenty games if you have like a really good defense and a really good offense and a really good bullpen around you. Um, but you can't win twenty games in a season and be bad. Uh, so these traditional metrics have actually been okay proxies for, uh, you know, performance. But the, the idea of using a proxy when you don't have to is a little strange. <laughs> you know, if we say, hey, look, uh, we have 
better data than just these three things? Is there any reason to exclude these other parts of baseball that we know exist, that we know matter, uh, that, you know, everyone in baseball will acknowledge matters in other contexts, other situations. But, you know, Joe Pazanski essentially tackled this issue from the lens of Ron Gardenhire this morning, where he basically looked at Gardenhire's comments about, you know, oh, well, this is just the favor people who value these things. And, in fact, Ron Gardenhire has made a uh, career out of managing guys who, you know, bunt the guys over and play defense and run the bases and don't hit home runs, don't drive in that many runs. Uh, and he's won a lot of divisions with the series with this type of player. So, you know, for him to think that these things are useless it isn't even real. He clearly sees value in these things. But when it comes to this specific debate, it seems like it's easier to just throw it out the window and say, nope, I want to hold on to the way I've always thought about baseball because I'm scared of the result if I let the nerds win. Do you think that decimal points are, are part of the problem? Do you think that because, you know, um, I, I guess there technically is a bat, there is a decimal point in batting average, but home runs and RBIs are whole numbers. Do you think that the presence of decimal points is frightening? I don't think so. I think if we rounded war on the site and said that Trout was a 10-win player and Cabrera was a 7-win player, they would find that just as offensive as we say they're 9.6 and 7.3. I just don't think that it's... To me, the issue isn't really about war or not war. I mean, war makes it pretty clear that, you know, Trout's the MVP. No matter what your misgivings are about defensive metrics or, you know, our ability to calculate everything to the decimal point, the gap is so large that your misgivings can't be... Uh, big enough to close the gap, but um, to me, this is really about, uh, you know, thinking about baseball in a very specific, narrow way, or being willing to accept that maybe that specific, narrow way is wrong, and there are people who don't want to accept that this specific, narrow way of evaluating baseball that was invented 120 years ago is incorrect. Uh, can you think of, in recent years of sort of the largest gaps that have have existed um, between the award winner, uh, between you know uh, an award winner, whether it be MVP or Cy Young, etc., and uh, a, a player who might be ahead of him, like so in this case we we have approximately what two or three run or two or three win gap between Cabrera and Trout. If yeah. if, if Cabrera were to win, uh, would that be the largest gap in in recent memory? Uh. Yeah, probably not. I know that there was, uh, you know, the 1996 AL MVP is one of the worst we've seen in a long time. That was the year Juan Gonzalez won because he had more home runs and RBIs than the Texas Rangers won the American Midwest. Uh, and Alex Rodriguez, who had the best age 20 season maybe in baseball history before Mike Trout came along, uh, it was, I think, 9.64 and, and uh, Juan Gonzalez was like 3.8. Uh, and even King Griffey Jr., he was on teammate, was like 10 more because his defensive metrics that year were off the charts. But both of them were over nine win players, you know, at least eight wins, depending on what your defensive evaluations of them were. Gonzalez was under four. So there was this huge gap, and Gonzalez won simply because his team won and he had more RBIs. Wait, did, um, did the Mariners not make the playoffs that year? No. Uh, Wait, they, they had two players who were about ten war and didn't make the playoffs? Correct. Is that – how often does that happen? Uh, well, the rest of that team was garbage. <laughs> that pitching staff was atrocious. Uh, Woody Woodward was really not good at putting rosters together. So, you know, they had lucked into the number one picks that turned out to be all-time inner circle Hall of Famers. And also had Edgar Martinez and Randy Johnson. They had some core pieces that you would look at and be like, this team's amazing. And they surrounded them with, you know, Rich Amaral and uh, just really awful, awful. Now, that's players. actually... Now that- 
that might be an instance where, right, like a general manager's skill is like rather easy to to quantify or measure. Like if you have, I mean, in this case, t- two players who together are worth twenty wins. Which yeah. what, what's what's replacement level at now? Uh, it's like forty four. Yeah. All right. So forty. So yeah, about say forty five wins to make it even. If you have two players who bring you up to sixty five, just on their own virtues. Yeah. Uh, uh, to to have twenty three other players, you know, give you like an additional twenty five wins. You really yes. Yeah, you just need like a bunch of other one win players. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it's, it's like, almost difficult to not to come up with the, with a playoff team at that point. Right. Uh, I mean, I think when you look at uh, that that group, uh, you know, the pitching rotation included guys like Sterling Hitchcock, uh, Bob Walcott, Matt Wagner, Terry Mulholland. Uh, I think, you know, it's possible to build a dynamic team and then just put so many bad pitchers on the mound that you undo everything that your offense has done. And that's basically what the 1996 Mariners did, is they put a pitching staff together that was so atrocious that the fact that they had A-Rod Griffey, Edgar Martinez, and Dave Buhner uh, didn't matter. Yeah, that would be uh, be actually difficult. Uh, Cameron, I know that uh, you're dying to find something out, and that is the players on whom I've developed uh, irrational feelings for recently. Are you you excited to hear about that? Yes, I'm imagining they throw 85. Uh, I believe one of them does. That's Phil Irwin. Phil okay. Irwin. Yeah. Uh, he's in the Pirates. He's in the pirate system, and um, yeah, he's uh, he's uh, unexceptional really up until this year. Uh, but he has spent this year striking everybody out. I think it's because of a refined changeup. I think if you were looking at the numbers, you'd find that it was a refined changeup. That seems likely. You like guys with refined changeups and high strike average. Oh, changeups are good to have. Those are good things. I, I, I'm with you. I like the changeup uh, maybe more than anyone else on earth besides you. So, uh, yeah. you know, I'm with you on your love of the changeup. I'm right. not always with you on your love of the guy who throw 84 and have the changeup. Right, yeah. So that's one guy. Uh, um, I've also. Um, I certainly like uh, have uh, come to enjoy w- Wilmer Flores's potential. Uh, so he, he's an interesting guy, right? I mean, he went from like probably pretty overrated earlier in his career to totally forgotten about, and then now he's had a good year and he's still young, and everyone's like, "Hey, Wilmer Flores, we forgot about him." Yeah, and uh, actually, I had a, a nice discussion uh, which we addressed Wilmer Flores with uh, um, with Mark Hewlett, and. Um, and Mark Hewlett and I were sort of discussing that, that this as a one route that, um, in particular, Latin prospects take. You know, it's hard in baseball to have lots of post-type prospects, but right. because we don't necessarily expect baseball players to be very good to begin with, right? Um, but in this case, with Wilmer Flores or in, in other Latin prospects, you know, um, you could have an instance where. You know, because they're 16 and 17, uh, and you know, given sizable bonuses, uh, they can be, they, you know, a fan base can get excited, especially a large fan base like like in New York. Uh, and then if they have a bad season, what at 18 or 19, then you forget about them. Right. <laughs> you know, this is a situation where they would just be getting at a high school, uh, if you know, if they were, if they were, you know, stateside. Um, so it's not particularly fair, but right, William, Wilmer Flores, not clear what his position will be at this point. Um, but looking good. No, but one player uh, that I, whose name I've come across who acquitted himself very nicely this year in the Southern League, which I guess would be with the, the Jackson Generals, the double-A 
Jackson Generals is Brad Miller. Yeah. Uh, who you might so know something about, but he showed um, excellent approach yep. at the plate. He's not he's not very old. He was I think he was uh, 22 this year, age 22 season in the Double A, and uh, he plays shortstop. He played shortstop this season. That may not be where he plays forever, though. Yeah, so you've actually got the physical tools to stay at shortstop. Uh, Miller's not one of these guys who just doesn't have the lateral movement to play the position. His problem is just fielding balls that are hit in his general direction, uh, which is unusual for a college-polished, uh, you know, kind of a lower upside guy. Um, Brad Miller doesn't have a lot of physical tools. So usually when you see these guys, you know, they're overachiever types who are steady and, you know, make all the right plays and fundamentally sound. It's, you know, that's kind of your picture of, like, the scrappy white utility guy. Uh, you know, Brad Miller fits that to a T, except for the fact that he makes a lot of errors. I mean, he made 35 errors this year between High Desert and Jackson. Um, and the question is whether he just has the, um, you know, mental focus or whatever it is that's causing him to make so many errors to allow him to remain in the position where balls get hit to him a lot. There's some thought that, you know, with those error problems, he might need to move to second base just so that there aren't as many balls in his direction. Okay, so that's an interesting... That's, I've only heard one player... Um, uh, sort of described like that recently, I mean, besides Brad Miller in this case, and that's uh, Didi Gregorius, the shortstop proctor, uh, prospect with the Reds, who's been, um, reports suggest that uh, in terms of range, he's excellent uh, in, in raw ability, um, but yeah, he, see, he appears to lose focus. And now you're saying this might be the case with Brad Miller as well. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that Miller makes a lot of errors. I think, uh, you know, in 2011, uh, you know, he he was, um, made like four errors in 15 games in his pro debut. But everyone said, oh, it's low A ball, it's, you know, bad fields in the Midwest League, it's no big deal. Um, this year he made 36 errors in 134 games uh, at high A ball and double A where the fields were better and, you know, the, the quality of, uh, of the hops were a little better. Um, it's hard to continue to blame this continuing error problem on the fields or the lights or um, you know, some other kinds of circumstances when you've made 44 errors in 150 games as a, as a professional player. So, um, you know, maybe this is fixable. There are examples of you know, Derek Peter when he was 18 made like 55 errors, but he was 18. You know, I think that there's a difference when you're a 22 or 23 year old guy who spent several years in college. These are the kinds of things you should have gotten ironed out by now. And uh, now, uh, one last note, and I'll let you go, but um, another, another player that Mark Hill and I discussed. Um, this past Friday was Corbin Joseph, who's a second base, second baseman in the Yankees system. Corbin Joseph was only 23 this year, and um, he was among the best hitters both at Double A and then Triple A. Um, and you know, if you're that at 23, that's very good. Uh, right. Corbin Joseph is not a gifted defender. He he's, he has played second base, but um, he may not be. He, he'll probably be a below average second baseman. And his ceiling is not that high. He's not a great sort of athlete. Um, but he's already at a level of offensive proficiency that y- you have to imagine that he'd probably uh, be an above-replacement level player, um, you know, even as just like a utility guy. And um, this uh, served as an entree for Hewlett and I to discuss maybe the relative value of high ceiling versus high floor prospects, and in particular with a right. focus on high floor prospects. I'm curious how, uh, what your sort of thoughts are on, on the high floor prospect, someone who has really no chances of being, you know, an all-star someday, but who would be ready to contribute with a team in the present? 
Yeah, it's funny. Jeff Sullivan and I were having this conversation over the weekend uh, as it relates to Jesus Montero and his prospect ranking because he's basically seen as the opposite, right? He's a really high-ceiling guy with also a pretty low floor. And so we were kind of discussing, like, at least I was telling him, my feeling is that prospect guys generally get this wrong. and They overvalue ceiling and undervalue floor. Um, you know, my theory on this is that the motivation is uh, list-based. So, you know, with prospects, it's mostly about trying to get as many of the top 100 guys to be as right as possible. And so your, your name as a prospect analyst is mostly um, how well you identify future stars. And so if you just really miss on guys who turn out to be amazing, then you'll hear about it for a long time. And there are still Yankee fans who remind me that I said Robinson Cano wasn't going to turn into a very good player. And, you know, 10 years later, they're, they're still holding on to that evaluation. So if you miss on a guy like that, um, it can be a pretty big blow, and so I think the, the focus of prospect evaluation is generally on upside to try and maximize the number of stars you can identify at a young age, because that's kind of where your chops are, are made as a prospect analyst. Um, and so when you get one of these, you know, lower upside guys who's probably not going to make you look foolish if you don't talk him up so much, uh, it's a little it's, it's a little easier to talk down his ceiling. Um, I think in reality we know less about ceiling than we do about floor. I mean, you know, you, obviously you, there's a lot of examples of guys like, uh, you know, Ben Gilbreth who just, you know, came out of nowhere to turn into a five or six win player. He's unusual, but there are a decent amount of examples out there of, you know, Dan Uglas of the world, and even on the pitching side, probably more often with James Shields and, you know, these change of guys that you, you love and that I like. And, uh, I think that there's a, a decent amount of evidence that guys who are considered to have you know, this lower ceiling often exceed what they were supposed to do and can turn into better players than, than were expected. So if we know that a guy is pretty close to Major League ready, is um, able to contribute as a one- or two-win player in the Major Leagues right now or very soon, uh, I don't know that we know enough about projecting power potential or uh, development of a breaking ball or command or some of the things that pitchers can do to drastically change their overall profile um, you know, to look at a guy like Cliff Lee in the minors and say his upside as a number four starter might have been true before he learned how to throw harder and throw a cutter and have a basic control, and now he's a number one starter. So, you know, I think that overall um, prospect valuation is is missing the boat on some of these low, low ceiling, you know, mid to high floor types. And I think that in general you can exploit the market by stocking up on these kinds of players and watching several of them exceed expectations. Right, and also, um, you know, if they have no other use than as um, bench players, right, or sort of role players for your team, so that you're not spending millions of dollars, uh, you know, to occupy a bench space. Yeah, I think that have changed a little bit. I mean, I think five or six years ago, uh, you know, veteran bench bats were expensive, or, you know, teams paid a lot for experience. I think that's changed. I think general managers have gotten smarter and realized that, doesn't make a lot of sense to give two or three million dollars to a guy who's going to play a you know thirty or forty games a year. Um, so I think the price of these kinds of you know marginal half win one win guys has come down quite a bit, and you can you can get a decent role player now for you know a million dollars or something close to it. So I don't know that there's a huge financial benefit to going with a kid in, instead of a veteran in the bench spot, but I do think that you know like there's a there's an upside advantage where if you get a thirty five year old utility guy, you're pretty sure he's going to break down at some point and be part of your future a 25-year-old bench guy, and then all of a sudden he turns out to not be a bench guy, you've taken that roster spot and turned him into a starting player, and so there's, a, there's an opportunity cost with giving it to a veteran that doesn't exist to the young guy. There it is. Voila. Uh, I will say that 
the uh, yeah the real prospect of the week though for me is Jesmuel Valentin, Jose Valentin's son. One of the best seasons, uh, at least uh, per the, per the uh, plate discipline numbers in the Arizona League this year. So I'll but, just leave that with you. Jose Valentin's son has good plate discipline. Yeah, and a low strikeout rate. That is amazing. Yeah, as a, as a uh, eighteen year old, he must get it from his mother. Yeah, <laughs> right. His mother never struck out. That's yeah. actually a fact. Yeah, if you look at her her stats in the Puerto Rican Academy, uh, they're excellent. But um, no, Jasmine Valentin only struck out in twelve percent of his two hundred plate appearances while walking in eighteen of them. Uh, so, so basically, we have a situation where the dad and son could not be more different. It's <laughs> yeah. like if like uh, you know. I guess the Tony Gwynn's kind of fit this because Tony Gwynn Jr. is really large. Tony Gwynn, Tony Gwynn Sr. was really large, and Tony Gwynn Jr. is really small. So maybe this isn't as unusual as we think. Well, we haven't seen. When did Tony Gwynn Sr. get large, though? Because there was a time oh, when he, was, he, he, he yeah, I mean, he like stole a lot of bases earlier in his career, but he was always round. Right. Well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, he was a, he was a good hitter though. He, he did a good he job. Was of very, right. He was a very good hitter. I guess the wins kind of make it hard for us to argue that the Valentines were the most different father son combination when when Tony Gwynn Sr. is one of the best hitters of all time and Tony Gwynn yeah. Sr. is definitely not. Anyway, Jesmo uh, Valentin only uh, only a 3.27 WOBA, 89 WRC plus in the Arizona League, but I think he's got I think he's got uh, a future ahead of him. This kid. Well, Let's, we will keep an eye on. Jose Valentin's son. Yeah, we will. Which I think is just Mule. Uh, or maybe Hesmule. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it sounds like the kind of name that could be a lot of fun. Strong chance that I've butchered it. Uh, yeah. And that I will be getting a number of calls. Uh, anyway. Well, that's unlikely. No one calls you. No, that's a fact. Um, uh, but in any case, uh, stick around for a moment, Dave Cameron. But uh, but in the meantime, thank you for, for being on Fangraphs Audio. You're making your weekly appearance. Yeah, no problem. All right. That's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.